Welcome to this second segment of the Thoughts from the Glen podcast, your stop for discussion concerning meaningful topics in life. I'm Jason Truett Glenn, and in this episode, I'll be discussing a hot topic on Twitter of late, at least within the Christian Twitter world, and that's the great debate on the merit or dangers of Christian nationalism. The title of this talk is, It Takes a Village to Understand Christian Nationalism. It was 1999, and I was working for a Christian bookstore in College Station, Texas, and I recently made some major life-changing decisions. I dropped my Marine Corps contract back in 97 and dropped out of my poli-sci history degree at Texas A&M in 98. I also met and got engaged to Ashley that same year. The closest analogy I can give for what took place in my life in 97 to 98 was uh, the procedure in the Matrix movies where they unplug you from the Matrix and from that virtual world you've been living in, and you then proceed to throw up everything to discharge what's been in your system for so long. I'll tell my fuller story some other time, but let's just say that I had a lot of bad ideas and postures to discharge from my mind. I jumped back into the Bible that year in a way that I hadn't experienced in a long time. My starving belly ate the Word of God up, and as I read, I was ashamed at who I had been over the previous four years. In this process of reflection, I became a bit reactionary, maybe a lot reactionary, towards my past sins and mistaken sociopolitical and ethical postures. I have no regrets, regrets of course, about uh, my saturation back into the Word of God. That wasn't the problem. It was my inability to see ethical nuance in things that I had ignorantly followed with my passions in the past. I became dogmatically against all forms of violence, for instance, and in, in war, most likely because I used to attach my identity to a blind form of what some would call Christian nationalism. So what did that look like? Well, let me just first say that I believe that there are a good many conservative versions of what Christians' relationship to a state and nation should look like. I personally don't believe that there's some perfect way of handling that relationship in every situation. I think there's probably a range of approaches that honor God. But back to my warped understanding of Christian nationalism. I was born in the mid-1970s, so I grew up in a conservative Bible-believing home that, I, uh, that believed in conservative Christian values. There was a zeal that my mother and father had for Christ by the time I was born, but it was a fresh zeal contextually speaking. They, they'd only been serious about their faith in Jesus for about five years by the time I was born, and they were still processing how that faith affected their understanding of uh, patriotism, entertainment, philanthropy, and civil duty in general. And my mom and dad weren't always on the same page in their opinions on these matters. I'm sure that many of you can relate to that. You know, for instance, my father would be convicted to, to put the TV away for like a year. Um, and then he would slowly bring it out to watch football. And then it would end up being, uh, you know, in the living room for a couple of years and then, and then recycle. Um, but the point here is that my family didn't have some long-standing, healthy tradition of how our Christianity should relate to our nation, to our citizenship. And they were taking in a lot of teaching and preaching from the outside fundamentalist Christians in order to help them decide these things. 
But whatever my parents were still unsure on, a space was still created in which Ronald Reagan was good, communism was super bad, Democrats were very deceived by Satan, and it was okay to speak violently to a certain extent about current and potential enemies. That was, again, that was that uh, Christian tie to nationalism. Um, ironically, my father probably couldn't articu- articulate his position in very academic terms at the time, but, but he was basically a pacifist. Uh, he got radically saved in his mid-20s and was a drunkard and was an army sergeant and, uh, again, just had a, a violent upbringing. So when he got saved, he swore all that stuff off. So, again, he was, he was uh, basically a pacifist. But he was one that was highly Republican because of the shared socio-religious values. We went to churches that were definitely more political than he was and uh, had much less zeal for sharing Christ than he did. That's the environment I found myself in. And, uh, of course, I, I still felt free to express a lot of violent speech towards the enemies of the state. I was wholeheartedly American even in the midst of being marginalized because of my faith in most public schools I attended. One small example of my zeal was the fact that I set up a dartboard in in my room with Saddam Hussein's picture on it in early 1991, and day after day I would slowly mutilate his face with darts as an expression of my own hatred for America's enemies. My sentiments towards uh, the Russians were the same, of course, as every good American boy was expected to hate the communists. At Texas A&M, when I joined the Corps of Cadets, this violent expression was given much more range. Uh, I had a special forces flag up in my room that read, Kill them all and let God sort them out. I sang violent jodies, these, uh, again, marching and, and running songs, uh, on unit runs that communicated some deeply dark sentiments towards potential enemies. One such jody sang, Go to town and kill the people. Drop some napalm on the square. Do it on a Sunday morning when they're on their way to prayer. Looking back, I'm ashamed at what was in my mind, in my heart, what I was willing to participate in, and and what came out of my mouth. I think that when some people think about Christian nationalism, this is the sort of thing they have in mind. They're concerned with the violent nature of some nationalistic postures, Uh, they're afraid of what they know to be in hearts and minds of some of their fellow citizens, and with good reason. They have visions of Nazis and the KKK, both having attached, of course, themselves to the Christian narrative uh, early in their formulation and and some still today. They understand that, historically speaking, there's a lot of precedence to be concerned about a certain type of violent nationalism. I'm concerned about that too, and we all should be. At this point, it certainly sounds like I'm against Christian nationalism. And, again, to a certain degree, I am. I'm against that form of Christian nationalism I just communicated. Uh, I realize that there is a a history of academic writings and arguments on Christianity in the state. I'm not, uh, of course, naive to the wonderful works uh, starting, of course, with uh, Augustine and, and moving on. Thousands of years of, uh, of good writing on what a Christian's relationship is with uh, the public square, with society, culture. 
My personal academic position was influenced by my readings of the works of, of men like Richard and Reinhold Niebuhr, Richard John Newhouse, and Oliver O'Donovan. And that came after uh, my pacifist leanings of uh, John Howard Yoder and, and Stanley Hauerwas. But I'm not speaking to, to these technical academic engagements right now, I'm, as relevant as they are. I'm speaking to a basic understanding of how the average Christian tends to think about these things. And here is where I get to our village. I'm cursed, so to speak, uh, to always think of John Rawls' 1971 work, uh, A Theory of Justice, when the idea of a, a social contract theory is brought up. Um, but it's important to address Rawls' theory because it's, it's been so influential over the years. In his book, uh, he suggests that in order to make as fair and just of a society as possible, a quote-unquote original position is required an idealistic frame of thinking that attempts to place all relevant parties behind a quote-unquote veil of ignorance, which makes them ignorant to their personal color, ethnicity, sex, religion, economic status, heritage, etc. Even ignorant uh, to their conceptions of good, this original position is supposed to make it so that when this collection of people are, are get together and deciding what sort of society they want, They'll have a, a posture of uh, liberal neutrality and make their their ethical claims on one another using some sort of Kantian categorical imperative without theoretically any sort of, of bias whatsoever. Well, one of the major problems with Rawls's view is that it simply isn't possible. Even in our best efforts to try and exclude our identities from the social contract process, uh, it's unrealistic. When tried, the prejudice and loyalties and convictions often simply go underground, still influencing decision-making behind a veil of deception rather than a veil of ignorance. But whole generations have been nurtured with an, an ethical posture that seems sees the appearance of neutrality as a virtue, even when significant bias is present right under the surface. In many ways, we currently see a drastic reaction to that philosophy in our day and time. We have, we've seen, of course, the rise of critical race theory, intersectionality, and the implementation of queer theory into the fabric of even our most basic public institutions, like the military. Many now see this as progress. But many Christians see this as a disenfranchisement from Christian America they once knew and loved and felt tied to, and still feel tied to. And here's the point. As Christians beholden to the Word of God, there are spirit-led, biblically-informed relational obligations that inform how we see our place in a village. As an unmarried man, uh, as an example, uh, I automatically have an obligation to love our neighbor and according to the definition and parameters that God communicates about his love. I feel an obligation to serve and love my neighbor, even if not... Uh, even if they don't become a Christian, or if they're not a Christian, right? I speak to my Christian values through my service, my sacrifice, my vote, my voice. But if I marry and become a family unit, the village becomes more complex. I now have the responsibility to nurture a Christian culture in my home. Even if I'm not successful in nurturing it outside my home, I'm responsible and empowered in a unique way to nurture that Christian culture in my own home. 
And this means loving my spouse above all the other neighbors, because this is representative of God's relationship with us. Even if we have children, then our responsibilities grow in complexity and moral weight. My spouse and I have to serve each other and our children before our neighbors, all the while seeking to serve our neighbors in a way that does not violate our proper service to each other and the children. And we want to teach our children how to love our neighbors while protecting them in the process. We want to educate our children in how to love our God and love each other accordingly while protecting them in the process. A part of loving our neighbors is sharing Christ with them and living a God-honoring, faithful life in front of them. Hopefully, the, you know, they'll come to be followers of Christ as well, and then we can cooperate in framing a relational tie with them that transcends simply our proximity to them in our neighborhood. We are now brothers and sisters. We now seek to nurture a larger community of worship to our God and, uh, and safety for our families, because to not seek those goals would be counter to the very nature of our identity as Christians. You can hopefully see where I'm going with this. We want to either build a village from scratch that is framed on Christian conviction and values, or we want to influence a pre-existing village to join us in our worship of God and our nurturing and protection of our families. The complexity, of course, is that there is an enemy at work. There is a demonic force that seeks for men and women to indulge in the worst parts of their fallen nature and or to pretend that righteousness is found in an alternative God who is no God at all. And those demons teach false doctrines and nurture communities of ignorance and depravity that compete for authority over village after village, family after family, and person after person. So much so that some villages that used to glow vibrant with the love and knowledge of God and obedience to his spirit and word, over time grow cold and numb, having forgotten their first love, having been led astray by the doctrines of demons, such as our sexual depravity, the love of money, and the fear of man. And just so you're not getting worried in my conversation, I'm not talking ideally about America here, although I think there are some villages in within American history that maybe look more like this. But, but no, I'm not setting America up as some great glowing uh, nation. And so we seek to nurture uh, our villages devoted to God, that we may continue to serve well and with greater stability, reach, and strength. This is not done in a holy vacuum, especially in the days of social media and constant access to countless competing worldviews. We fail. We're, we're momentarily corrupted. We fall away. We get distracted and become numb. And yet, as a covenanted family, we seek to create an increasing uh, sphere of influence that is supported by godly individuals and godly families. We seek to build, influence, and nurture a Christian village for the good of all. Ever since reading Richard Niebuhr's highly influential 1951 book, Christ and Culture, while I was in seminary, I've always appreciated uh, the paradigms he framed for how Christians often approach their relationship with culture. He, he frames um, them in five ways. Number one, Christ against culture. Number two, the Christ of culture. Number three, Christ above culture. Number four, Christ and culture and paradox. And number five, Christ the transformer of culture. 
in retrospect, I, I'd probably say that I started my journey in Christ as a, a Christ-of-culture sort of thinker, not really understanding much about the complexities of Christ and culture. Then, because of my internal struggle with the consequences of my own sin, I signed on to the Christ-against-culture perspective, attempting to rise above the fray and keep myself and my family uh, untainted by the ugliness of the world and the consumerism of shallow Christian America. But over time, as I have briefly explained to you, I became aware of my responsibility within my home and to my neighbor and to my village. I'm still working that out. I'm still struggling with what that looks like. I'd probably um, now situate myself as swimming between Niebuhr's last three categories. But as it pertains to the Christian nationalism conversation, I think this statement by Niebuhr in this la- his last chapter of the book is a helpful warning to us Twitter theologians. If you'll oblige me, I'd like to share his words with you. He says, quote, It must be evident that neither extension nor refinement of study can bring us to the conclusive result that would enable us to say, This is the Christian answer. Reader as well as writer is doubtless tempted to say it, to assay such a, a conclusion, for it will have become so evident to the one as to the other that the types are by no means wholly exclusive of each other, and that there are possibilities of reconciliation at many points among the various positions. Then later on, one is stopped at one point or another from making the attempt to give a final answer, not only by the evident uh, paucity of one's historical knowledge as compared with other historical men, and the evident weakness weakness of one's ability to conceptual uh, construction as compared with other thinkers, but by the conviction, the knowledge, that the giving of such an answer by any finite mind to which any measure of limited and little faith has been granted would be an act of usurpation of the lordship of Christ, which at the same time would involve doing violence to the liberty of Christian men and to the unconcluded history of the church and culture. In all honesty, friends, I don't like the term Christian nationalism. It rubs me the wrong way. It gives me the feel that something holy has been compromised. But I know that many don't feel that way about the term, and in actuality, they define it in a very similar way that I would define my own view of Christ and culture. They just want to name their view something that shows their devotion to the village in terms of their devotion to Christ. There's no doubt that many proponents of classical liberalism and pluralism, uh, those that sneer at the term Christian nationalism as well, would also agree on much of what the, the some Christian nationalists and I have in mind concerning our obligation to our village and to our God. It's important for us to keep the conversation going, to seek common ground and an approach and understanding of what we hope for and, and what we are willing and not willing to do to walk with God towards achieving such goals. I think, at the very least, we can start with the love of God and then work from there. I appreciate you taking the time to listen to yet another episode of Thoughts from the Glen. May you all have a wonderful week in which you experience a life filled with faith, hope, and love of our Lord Jesus Christ. Until next time, this is Jason Truett Glenn reminding you that we don't live in a world without love.